Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Hey, we're taking a break from our Romans chapter 8 teaching series that we're doing throughout this summer. And uh, today we're going to talk about, from the Bible's perspective, what it means to be a citizen of the United States, as well as a citizen of heaven. And uh, I personally am very proud to be a member and a citizen of this great nation of ours. I'm I'm equally and even more so thrilled to be a citizen of heaven. You know, I'm a a child of the 80s. Uh, Several of y'all out there are also children of the 80s. And of course, that means different things to different people, Uh, certainly for me. It, uh, it generated a certain patriotic spirit in my heart. You know, if you're a child of the 80s in this room, uh, this man was your president. And uh, when he came to office in 1980, really elected in 1980, uh, his campaign slogan was, it's morning again in America. Uh, of course, if you know anything about American history, the, the two decades leading up to 1980 were a, a time of difficulty and tension in our nation. Assassination of uh, President Kennedy, Vietnam War, Watergate, and an economy that was absolutely spiraling downward in the 70s so that by the time Ronald Reagan took office, uh, inflation was double what it is now. I mean, the inflation in the 70s would make inflation today look like child's play. And so here comes Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, and there, there was a certain hope. There were, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a certain optimism that was rising in those days. Uh, you know, the, the 1984 election, when he was reelected, uh, that was the greatest landslide in modern history in our nation. Uh, we will probably never see something like that again, as divided as our nation is today. And so that's what I remember. Many of you remember uh, this man being president. I'm not saying that he was perfect by any means, but there was an optimism. That there was an optimism that was rising in our nation when I was when I was a child. Uh, something else, at least on the popular level in pop culture, this is what I remember being a child of the 80s. Uh, multiple touch points, uh, the miracle on ice, the, the Team USA beats the Soviets in the 1980 election. Uh, Rocky IV, I mean, it doesn't get much more patriotic than Rocky IV, y'all, as he beat up the Russian. Uh, then you got Superman and Superman II flying around and restoring the, the flag there to the uh, to the White House, and then of course we had the uh, the invasion of Grenada in 1983, uh, where where, uh, where American military forces kicked the communists out of the island nation of Grenada, where they were trying to get a a foothold. And then of course you had Red Dawn. I mean, who did not walk around in the 80s saying Wolverines, right? I mean, so there was there was just this this popular level kind of patriotism that was that was going on when I was a child. And then of course. Uh, I, I had, as a child, and even into, into my years as a young man, I had the incredible blessing and good fortune to rub shoulders with many members of what we call the greatest generation. My grandparents, my grandfather was a World War II veteran, uh, and, and, but not just them, their peers and many people outside of that generation. If you had the opportunity to rub shoulders for any length of time with members of the greatest generation, you were indeed blessed. Uh, they endured the austerity of the Great um, Depression, and then followed immediately on, on that, in the heels of that, was this Second World War. Uh, quite honestly, in, the, in modern history, the greatest threat, the existential threat to liberty and freedom this world has ever known, certainly in the last several hundred years. 
And, and they went through all of that. And, and there was a certain love. I'm telling you if, you, if you did not know people in the greatest generation, there was a certain love for country, certain love for our nation that we just don't feel as, as much as, as they did. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But, but I would tell you today, friends, I am absolutely thrilled and I am so grateful to God that he allowed me to be a, a, a citizen of this great nation. It's not perfect, but anyone who has traveled at any time overseas would know that this is the best thing going. And I, I, I firmly believe that. And yet at the same time, as many of you know, in April of 1990, I became a citizen of heaven. I was saved I was born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we said last week, I was adopted into God's family. And so the Bible says that I am a citizen of heaven, as so many of you are as well. And as awesome as it is to be a citizen of the United States, and, and, and I, don't, I don't take anything away from that, how much more incredible is it to be a citizen of heaven? And so th there's this, this duality of citizenship for any child of God. Isn't that true? Even Jesus recognized this duality of citizenship, if you know what I mean. You remember this now. Jesus said this. Look at this. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 21, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning the, the empire, the government, the, 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 the ruling powers of the day. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So there's this duality of citizenship there, and today we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about being a citizen of our nation and being a citizen of heaven. All right, so the first thing I want you to see, and you can find Romans chapter 13, be turning to that, Romans chapter 13, the first thing I want you to see is our national citizenship, all right? Our national citizenship. Does the Bible say anything specifically about being a citizen of the United States of America? Not explicitly about our nation, but I will tell you the Bible has a lot to say about being a, a man or, or woman of God and living the best possible life we can in Jesus' name in the midst of whatever nation we find ourselves. All right, And Romans chapter 13 gives us some tremendous principles about that in terms of our national citizenship. So let's begin reading in Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. If I was to kind of encapsulate what I just read for you, I'd do it along three lines. First of all, I would say that every government has, has somehow, some way been ordained by God. 
there is no government that has somehow ginned up its own power. The only power any government can have has been somehow, someway given by God. Jesus affirmed this when he was talking to Pontius Pilate. Look at this in the Gospel of John. John 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. There's no government. Even Pilate and, and, and all the atrocities that the Romans propagated, somehow, way, God was behind them having that authority. Same thing with our nation uh, today. Second thing is this. Not only that the governments and all the powers are ordained by God, but we as citizens have a responsibility to obey those powers, provided they don't forbid something that God commands or they command something that God forbids, right? I mean, this is a famous verse, Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The high priest said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, meaning don't preach about Jesus anymore. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And when government forces us to do something that, that God forbids, or government commands us to do something that God forbids, or government forbids something that God commands, we say we have, we have a responsibility to obey God rather than man. But anything short of that, we are to follow the powers that are over us. That's what it says in Romans chapter 13. And then the third thing, of course, is what, what is the role of government? What, what, what is the role of these governmental powers that God has, has ordained? Well, at the end of the day, it, it's to safeguard innocent people and the people who are doing right, and to restrain, if not punish, those who are doing wrong. That's what we see in Romans. You say, okay, so Pastor Phil, what, what are some responsibilities that we have as citizens, based on what you see in Romans 13 and, and the Word of God in general, what are some specific responsibilities that we have as citizens of our nation, in this case, the United States? Well, I think Adrian Rogers hit it out of the park, and you can't really improve upon some of the things that he shared many years ago, but I'll tell you some of which are this. And, and you're going to hate to hear the first one. First of all, you've got to pay for your government. You see that in Romans chapter 13? You've got to pay for your government. I know there's some people out there that say taxation is theft, but the Bible says pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Jesus Christ paid his taxes. There are two occasions when Jesus specifically paid his taxes. You may remember the famous story where it was time to pay taxes, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus said, Peter, go get a fish out of the water. He brought a fish out of the water, and there was a coin in his mouth. You say, Pastor Phil, if it was that easy, I'd be happy to pay my taxes too, <laughs> right? Well, the fact is, regardless, we are told to pay our taxes, right? Now, the government does warn against, excuse me, the Bible warns against excessive taxes in the Old Testament. In many places, there was a warning about excessive taxes, and certainly, the Bible prohibits subsidizing idleness and laziness with tax money. The Bible says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat, right? There, there is a prohibition on there. Right? And certainly there are ways that we as citizens can speak into the tax code in our nation. But at the end of the day, we have a responsibility as God's people to pay for our government. Secondly, we also have a responsibility to pray for our government. Uh, maybe you have seen these verses before. First Timothy, look at this. 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We have a responsibility to pray for the leaders of our nation, and not just the ones we agree with. Amen? Right? We have, we have a responsibility. In, in plain language, if you're more fired up about praying for Donald Trump than Barack Obama or Joe Biden, you're wrong. Or if you're more fired up about paying for Joe Biden or Barack Obama and not as much for Donald Trump, you're wrong. Whoever is in a position of authority needs our prayers. Maybe they need our prayers in order that they be saved. Or maybe they need our prayers because they, they need wisdom. And that's not just at the national level, it's the state level, local level. We have a responsibility to pray for our leaders. Psalm 122, look at this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your... There's a command, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now certainly Jerusalem is a special place on the entire planet, and, and we should pray for the peace specifically of Jerusalem. But if you contextualize this, Psalm 122 is written to people who were citizens of that nation. So likewise, we should pray for Washington, D.C. We should pray for Little Rock. We should pray for the places of leadership, that those places would be filled again with wisdom and, 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 and emptied of, of chaos and insanity and all these other things that are characterizing the political process in many ways. We've lost civility in our nation, quite frankly. We have lost civility in our nation. We have lost the ability to disagree with someone and not hate them at the same time. Pray for the peace. Pray for the peace. And then one other, Romans chapter 10. Look at this. My heart's desire and prayer to God for my fellow Jews, again, fellow citizens, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We should be praying for our neighbors. We should be praying for other people by name, other fellow citizens of our nation by name, that they would come to know Jesus Christ that they would come to know the Savior that we know, that one day they too would be citizens of heaven. That's a great prayer. And so, we, yes, we've got to pay for our nation, but we're commanded to also pray for our nation. You know what else we need to be doing? We need to preach to our nation. We need to preach to our nation. That's another responsibility we have. Listen to George Washington, the first president of our nation. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. Meaning, if you're, if you're not supporting religion and morality as, as the bedrock that, that makes a democracy work, you're subverting everything. These firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Here's the deal. If you have a democracy... What, what, what ultimately rules a democracy? The will of the people, right? The problem is when people say, we don't need God, when elected officials say, we don't need God, when a nation, God help us, when a nation says, we don't need the Lord, that's when democracy completely goes off the rails. And so our job as, as believers and Christians and citizens is to remind our nation the importance of its dependence upon God and don't let anyone ever tell you you need to go back into your stained glass prison and stop preaching 
We have a responsibility to preach to our nation. This is nothing new. I want you to think about the times in the Bible where God sent his people to preach to positions and and people in power. Moses preached to Pharaoh, right? Elijah preached to Ahab. David preached to Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist preached to King Herod. If you want to know what needs to be preached, go and look at what John the Baptist said to King Herod. He did not hold back, but he told him. He was was bringing a word from God. I like what Adrian Rogers said. Listen to this. The state is not the master of the church, and the church is not the master of the state. The church is the conscience of the state, and if the leaders of a nation ever forget their need for God, we are here to remind them regardless of the party, regardless of the perspective, I will tell you something I've told you many times before. I personally don't consider myself to be a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent. I'm a Christocrat. Jesus is King. He is my King, and I'm going to pledge all my allegiance ultimately to Him. And I don't want to be associated too closely with any political party. I want to remain in a position to be able to tell every political party to repent and get right with God. So we've got to preach to our nation. Here's something else we need to do. We need to participate in our nation. We need to participate in our nation. We as citizens of this great country have the right to vote. We have the right to vote. It is God-given. It is constitutionally facilitated. My job as a pastor is not to tell you how to vote or to tell you who to vote for. The role of this church is not to tell you how to vote or to tell you who to vote for. My job is to equip you to think biblically so that when you step into that ballot box, you can cast a vote that is in alignment with God's principles and God's convictions. That's my job. That's my job. Now, I will tell you this. I don't mind telling you this, quite frankly. If you're a citizen of this nation and you're not voting at all, I think you're a pretty sorry steward of the freedoms that God has given you. Okay? So here's the thing. We have this tremendous, tremendous opportunity that God has given us. Why would God create this, this, this government and, and, and ordain this government and tell his people to stay out of it? Right? What? Who does that leave to cast the votes? Think about it. Right? Now, I remember the first time I ever voted. It was 1992. I was 19 years old. I was voting in the general election, presidential election, and so forth. I was voting absentee. I was in the Marines at the time, stationed in Washington, D.C. And I I don't want to sound corny. This is not meant to sound corny, all right? But when I got that absentee ballot in the mail, and I sat down in the barracks and took out my little thing and started marking those ballots, it it almost felt like a religious experience, quite honestly. Because because I had the opportunity to participate in, in in the governing and, and, and the democratic process of, of our country. Uh, I, and I feel the same way today, over 30, 30 plus years later. Whenever I get a chance to vote, I, 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 just, I feel like I'm participating in something that God has directly given me. And listen to me, friends. Make no mistake about it. The rulings of the Supreme Court of the United States of this week that upheld some very important religious liberties for you and me, those outcomes were a direct result of the fact that God's people went to the ballot box several years ago and cast votes, okay? That there, that there is a direct relationship, and I will tell you this, 
If God's people had not gone and been engaged in the political process, the outcomes of the rulings this week would have been, would have been dramatically different and not in our favor. You're taking your religious liberties for granted if you do not vote. We have incredible freedoms guaranteed by the United States Constitution and ultimately given to us by God, but if we take those for granted, they will be gone. They will be gone. Okay? So, here's the thing. We've got to participate in our government prayerfully, biblically, and actively. But here's one other thing. Quite honestly, I think we need to praise our nation. We need to praise our nation. Uh, we, we obviously have a, a, an overtly patriotic theme this weekend, and, and for good reason. Tuesday is the 4th of July, Independence Day. We celebrate our freedoms. But honestly, I think one of the other reasons why we're having this emphasis today is because in our nation, patriotism has fallen on hard times. Love for country uh, and, and, and overt love for our nation has, has fallen on hard times. You say, Pastor Phil, why do you say that? Well, think about some of, the, some of the poll numbers that have just come out in the last few months. Look at this. Okay, here's one, for example. In 1995, 62% of Americans said that their religious faith was very important to them, and 70% said patriotism was very important to them. That's, a, that's an overwhelming majority in both cases. In 2023, only 39% of Americans said, so now we're, we're, you know, we're, we're almost 30 years later, 39% of Americans said their religious faith was very important to them, and 38% said patriotism was very important to them. It's fallen on hard times. Here's another one. In 2012, 26% of Americans said that our nation's best days are behind us. So here's the pessimists. Only a quarter of Americans said, yeah, we're pretty much on a decline. There's no hope for the future. Uh, all of our best days is, is in the rearview mirror. In 2023, 48%, almost half of Americans have said that our nation's best days are behind us. Why? Why, why is there this, this decline that, that largely manif manifests itself based on, along generational lines? Well, the late uh, uh, political commentator Charles Krauthammer said this. Look at what he said. For two generations now, we have taught our children much about our national sins and little about our national glories. This is un-American and destructive. And it naturally leads to large numbers of citizens saying, I'm not proud of my country. Is America perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, you don't have to hardly be able to read anything out of a history book in order to know that there are some national sins that our nation has committed, as every nation has. We're no different. But at the same time, there have been some incredible, incredible things. Yes, I believe that God has done for this world through our nation. And our nation continues to set the pace in so many good things in so many good ways. And yet, if, if the generations coming up are only hearing about the bad and not the good, absolutely you'd have a dismal perspective on the United States of America. I like what Tim Scott said. I, I love this brother, and not because, not because of his political affiliation, color of his skin, or anything. I love his heart. Listen to this. Let's stop telling Americans the lie that we live in a racist, declining country that is not the land of opportunity. It's the land of oppression. That's exactly what many of the next up-and-coming generation is hearing. This is the land of oppression. It's always been oppression. It's always about oppression, right? Let's stop selling the drug of victimhood and the narcotic of despair. Let's help the American people see that we are a nation that rises to the occasion. There is an optimism 
when I, when I hear Tim Scott and others speak, this is not an endorsement, by the way. This is just me simply saying, I love this man's heart. Okay? There's an optimism about who we are as Americans and, and, and the potential in our nation. Now, I, I firmly believe in the inherent goodness of our founding charter documents of 1776, Declaration of Independence, 1789, the U.S. Constitution. I, I believe that there's goodness there and there's liberties and freedoms promised now, do I believe that, that, that we, have, we have applied those liberties and freedoms in a perfect way over the last 200 plus years? No. We are moving in the right direction, but I will tell you this, I totally disagree with and I totally oppose this philosophy in our nation today that says that these documents are systemically and, and irreparably broken and we just need to burn the whole thing down. I totally oppose that. And I am all about seeing the liberties and freedoms that we see, again, in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution rightly applied to our citizens, and we continue to ardently do that. Again, the problem is that when people hear nothing but the fact that they, America is an oppressive nation, this place is broken, we, we, we've done nothing but bad for 200-plus years, that's why you have people who want to protest the basic symbols of, of unity in our nation, such as our flag and our national anthem, right? There's a time and a place to protest, but we must have some, some unifying images in our flag and, again, our, our national anthem and all of these things. But you think about the athletes. For example, uh, just, just a few years ago, 2020, Brittany Griner said this from the WNBA, I honestly feel we should not play the national anthem during our season. I think we should take that much of a stand. I'm going to protest. I'm not going to be out there for the national anthem. If the league continues to play it, that's fine. It will be all season long. I'll not be out there. I feel like more are going to probably do the same thing. I can only speak for myself. Now, that's, I mean, there's many athletes that were taking that same stand. And yet, in the last 18 months, Brittany Griner was probably the only professional athlete that spent 10 months in a Russian jail. And that tends to give people a little perspective, doesn't it, right? It tends to, when, 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 not just when you're overseas and, and you see the way other nations treat their citizens, but when you find yourself in, in a jail cell, in, a, in an oppressive, in a truly oppressive communist nation, it gives you some perspective. Guess what Brittany Griner said just a few months ago? Look at this. One good thing about this country is you have the right to protest. You have the right to be able to speak out, question, challenge, and do all these things. What I went through and everything, it just means a little bit more to me now. So I want to stand, meaning she's going to stand for the national anthem now. I was literally in a cage and could not stand the way I wanted to. And a lot of other different situations. Just being able to hear my national anthem and see my flag, I definitely want to stand. Now listen to me, friends. I do not share that turn of events and turn of perspectives in her life to be snarky, to somehow point a finger and say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's not my point. What I'm simply telling you is that a little bit of perspective on exactly what we enjoy as Americans, we take it for granted. We take it for granted, right? And, 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 and some, some circumstances and seeing the, the lack of freedoms in so many other places in the world, I'm telling you, you will come back to the United States with a whole new perspective. So I said earlier in the message that uh, 
I had the incredible blessing as a young man and a boy to rub shoulders with the greatest generation. Again, uh, the, the austerity that we, we can't even possibly imagine, the austerity of the Great Depression, followed closely by the horrors of the Second World War. And whenever I have a chance to listen to members of the greatest generation, m- most of whom are now deceased, uh, whenever I have a chance to even to listen to them in, in video and so forth from years ago, it, it stirs my heart because they understood, I believe, generally speaking as a generation, they understood how good and how awesome it is to be an American. Uh, There was one gentleman in particular in the Second World War. He was captured in the Philippines in 1942. He endured the uh, the, the, the notorious Bataan Death March. Tens of thousands of American uh, service personnel died on that. And he was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for three years. His name was Glenn Frazier. And I want you to hear just a, a short little testimony from Glenn Frazier about the day he was able to come back to the United States. Look at the screen. We sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge and into uh, San Francisco Bay. And as we approached the pier, there, I get a little choked up. There was the American flag, the sailor flying high in the breeze over American soil. And it was the most gratifying thing because we never dreamed we would ever get back. And there was a bunch of prisoners of war on there. And we stood there, couldn't even say anything, with tears in our eyes. And as we docked, I was, one of, I was the second one to get off. And I get out on the ground and I kiss the ground. And every one of the prisoners of war that was on that ship got, a, got off the gangplank and kissed the ground. And our audience out there was just clapping their hands every time and welcoming us home. And it was the greatest feeling in the world. That'll get you, won't it? Right? I mean, there, there, there was a generation of people who, who, who truly treasured uh, the, the goodness of what, of what our nation holds uh, for, for its citizens. And, and I, I tell you, I, I, I want to be part of that perspective and tell you that I'm so grateful that, that I'm an American citizen. And so, yes, the Bible does have some things to say about, about our national citizenship. But I will tell you that the Bible also has some things to say about our heavenly citizenship. Uh, and typically, whenever we do a, a message on, um, on patriotism, normally maybe a Memorial Day message or sometimes Veterans Day or Fourth of July weekend, there's a quote that I tend to give to you, and, and I want to give it to you again because it's so important. It was from a British nurse in World War I named Edith Cavell. Edith uh, was, uh, was working on continental Europe uh, to rescue several, if not hundreds, of British and other Allied uh, soldiers from the, the Germans. She was captured by the Germans and sentenced to death by firing squad uh, for, for her activities. The night before she was uh, executed, she met with a priest. She absolutely loved her country, and yet she also said this, standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. Here's something we, we have to realize, okay? We, we, are, we are, as Americans, we are on a, on a span of history. And as you look back in history, Every single world superpower, every single uh, empire 
ultimately has ended up as a footnote in history. You know that? Alexander the Great conquered pretty much the entire known world at that time and then wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, and yet Alexander's empire and, 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 and nation is a footnote in history. Roman Empire, again, for all of its grandeur and power, it was the world's superpower for, for many years, is now a footnote in history. The British Empire, uh, Great Britain, uh, at one time it could truthfully, truthfully be said that the sun never set on the British Empire, and yet now we see England scraping and clawing its way to relevance in this world. They, they, are, they are quickly becoming a footnote in, in world history. Uh, the United States, if the Lord tarries, the United States will join all these other empires, all the other, other superpowers, as, as a footnote in history. And, and I don't, I, I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on everything I just said about how much I love our country, okay? But I will tell you, at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is the Word of God. It's not ultimately what the Constitution says. It's not ultimately what's, what the Declaration of Independence says. It's what the Word of God says. And so what is the perspective on our heavenly citizenship? Jesus himself said this. Look at this. John chapter 18. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We've already seen that Jesus understood there's a duality of citizenship. And then how about Philippians chapter 3? This is the, the very important passage that talks about this very concept. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's heaven going to look like anyway? I mean, from, from a perspective of bringing, bringing people together around the throne of God, what's heaven going to look like? Think about it. I mean, we're just going to kick the doors open to heaven here for a second and take a peek. Look at this, Revelation 5. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just a glimpse of heaven. Revelation chapter 7, again, another glimpse. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. No national boundaries or borders, no national flags of one kind or another, no citizenship of this country or that country, but all gathered in the name of Jesus Christ around the throne, worshiping, casting down their crowns in, in adoration. The hymn writer Isaac Watts put it so well, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane 
no more. Let me ask you a question. Are you a citizen of heaven? As much as I love being a citizen of our great nation, the most important thing of them all is to be a citizen of heaven, to know that you're going to heaven, to know that you're saved, that you've received Jesus Christ personally. Have you been saved? Do you absolutely know with, with total certainty that if you died today, you'd be in heaven with Christ, ultimately our King of kings and Lord? Do you know that? I'm telling you, I said this last week, every single week, I look into some eyes of some people who have never gotten their salvation settled. You don't know if you're a citizen of heaven. Maybe, maybe you prayed a prayer years ago as a kid, but as you look at your life, you just, you, there's no evidence that you've truly been saved. Are you a citizen of heaven? That's the most important question that I could ask you today out of all the questions I could ask. Have you truly trusted Jesus Christ? I want to challenge you today. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, and your place is not secure in heaven around that throne, in that picture that I just read, you say something like this to Jesus. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I, cannot, I know I can't save myself. There's no way that I could possibly save myself. But I, Jesus, I do believe you died on the cross for my sins, for my sins. Jesus, I believe you rose again on the third day, bodily, physically. And Jesus, I believe you're holding out that free gift of eternal life to me. Right? Citizenship in heaven, you're holding it out, free, paid for. All I've got to do is receive it. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.